0: Father, thank you for tonight. Um, Thank you that we can all be here. Um, Thank you for um, your word and the truth in it and the way that you heal us, make us better. Um, Lord, I could use some of that. Um, Please, please help me to get through this. Um, Yeah, we love you a lot. Amen. (coughs) Pardon. So, yeah, there's the sick disclaimer. Um, Although, I don't know about you guys, but when I do get sick... Um, I like to just, you know, slam into that virus with everything I've got. Um, I I slept about nine and a half hours last night, hour and a half nap this afternoon, fully intend to sleep another nine or ten hours tonight, Uh, just throw in every, you know, garlic, zinc, vitamin C, all that good stuff. Uh, Even this nuclear option that Meg brews, uh, that the Crofts told us about, this thing we call fire tonic. It's where you take um, apple cider vinegar and then you soak jalapenos, and horseradish, and ginger, and garlic, and then you leave it in the dark for 14 days. This is important, makes it scarier. Um, drain out the solids, and then you intentionally take shots of this. Um, right? Feels like I'm getting uppercut in the stomach every single time. And I've even been willing to do that lately. I want to be well. Um, and it actually, it ties in pretty well with what we're looking at tonight how much we really value getting well and what we're willing to do for it. Um, So in just a bit, we're going to get back into our study through the life of Samuel. But first, I want to tell you one other story. Once upon a time, because it's, of course, how all stories start. There was a woman named Mary Mallon. Uh, Mallon was a cook. Uh, She made a living working for wealthy families at the rate of about once a year or so. And uh, she was pretty good at what she did. You know, the food was tasty, no complaints overall. Kitchen seemed to be clean enough, uh, except one day members of her current uh, employer's family started getting sick, and not just a little sick. They actually ended up hiring an investigator named George Soper to figure this out, and in part of the investigation, he checked in with Mallon's previous employers. He found out that of the, uh, of the eight families she'd worked for in the past half a decade, seven of them, almost entirely, this whole family, had gotten very, very ill, and all of them with the same illness. Um, So Malin refused to give any sort of samples for testing, uh, so eventually the police working with the health department arrested her and put her in quarantine. While they were there, she tested positive for incredible numbers of uh, salmonella germs uh, in her gallbladder, um, even though she was seemingly healthy. She was held for about three years, at which point they finally released her on the condition that she change careers and start washing her hands, for goodness sake. Um, see that was the thing during the questioning she said that she didn't really didn't always wash her hands super thoroughly while cooking she didn't see the need for it this is also early 1900s so she still probably should have known but she refused once they released her she changed her last name to Brown Mary Brown and uh, went right back to the job she was comfortable with and once again outbreaks followed her everywhere that she went Um, Investigator Soper ended up tracking her down once again, getting her back into quarantine, where she remained for the rest of her life. Uh, In the meantime, though, the newspapers loved the story, as newspapers do, and it was they who gave her the name Typhoid Mary. By the time she was stopped, Mary Mallon had directly infected hundreds of people and killed as many as 50 men, women, and a lot of children, all because of a preference for speed and keeping her hands dry the way she liked it. There was a rule that seemed dumb to her, and she decided to obey parts of it when it was convenient and, you know, just do her own thing the rest of the time. As she saw it, it was no big deal because she was obeying, mostly. Wasn't that enough? Is it possible to test mostly negative for a disease? Is it possible for a surgical uh, scalpel or a bread knife to be mostly free of infection in any way that has meaning? Is it possible for us to choose to mostly obey God? That's the question that we've got to look at this week as we uh, take a look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Um, If you don't have a Bible with you, it'll be right up thereabouts. Um, So the chapter is a pretty darn heavy one and a pretty long one, so let's just jump right into it. Verse one, the prophet Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men and women and children and infants and cattle and sheep and camels and donkeys. <laughs> well, aren't we starting off on a cheery note? Um, why exactly is he erasing an entire tribe? So we know from uh, Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25 that Amalek and his followers were the first ones to attack Israel on their way out of Egypt. Uh, they were predators who preyed upon God's children and would have been plenty happy if they could have just wiped out chosen people, the ancestors of the Christ, or land for them. And this has been coming since Exodus 17:14, when God says he will completely blot out the tribe of Amalek. And he did mean completely. The word translated as totally destroy in verse number three up there. Um, that is haram. It means to consecrate something to the Lord, kind of like you're offering a sacrifice, to annihilate something so hard that no one could possibly lay any claim to it, including you. It also cut out the possibility of motivating war through wanting to get rich off of it. Um, And like a sacrifice, it was an act of worship, of obedience. Um, We've seen that term once before, actually, while I was up here. Uh, Do you remember a little while back in another sermon I mentioned the destruction of Jericho in Joshua 6. Once again, Haram. Um, In that case, um, as some pretty recent archaeology tells us, one one of the reasons that God ordered the entire city destroyed in that way um, was because of this plague that had killed many hundreds inside the city. This is also why he prohibited taking out any non-metal objects from the city. It was a way of preventing the spread of the contagion. There was a man named Akan who did, and God had him executed and burned along with his possessions outside. Now, this looked pretty freaking harsh, and in many ways was. But at the same time, it was an act of grace in saving about a million lives of his people. Maybe this was like that. I don't know. Maybe there will be a specific reason that we learn in a few more years, or maybe God had foreseen that the Amalekites would have succeeded in destroying the Israelites if not for this attack, maybe physically through war, maybe spiritually through the idol worship that drew them once again and again away from God. Um, I don't know, and that's not the main point of this passage, even though it's one that is a big point for us. I mean, this is gnarly stuff. I don't like it. I, I wish it wasn't there. Um, But at the same time, i got to keep wrestling with this, you know. And I want to encourage you guys to do that, too, just to keep wrestling with, well, do I trust God enough that he chose this for a reason? In this chapter, as in a lot of different things in life, the thing itself doesn't matter as much as the heart that's beneath it, if that makes sense. It's... What matters of the heart create these events. Do things that happen matter? Of course. But we have to look at the roots of it. And that's what we're looking at tonight. So, verse 4. Saul summoned the men and mustered them at Telaim, 200,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 from Judah. Saul went to the city of Amalek and sent an ambush in the ravine. Then he said to the kingites, Go away, leave the Amalekites so that I do not destroy you along with them you showed kindness to all the Israelites when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites moved away from the Amalekites. <laughs> Seems like a good move. So Saul wasn't just attacking at random here, still obeying orders. And so far, so good with that. Then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur, near the eastern border, border of Egypt. Um, I looked this up. That's right around 1,000 miles. So pretty thorough. Uh, at the very least, it shows us that Saul was capable of carrying this out. And he did Kind of. Verse 8. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. So let's review. The idea of haram meant you destroyed something as a way of giving it to God. So they took all the good stuff, and then they gave to God all the weak and despised stuff. Reminds me a little bit of the sons of Eli we looked at a while ago, having their fill and then just throwing God the leftovers. Verse 10. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king because he has turned away from me and has not carried out my instructions. Samuel was angry, and he cried out to the Lord all that night. The Hebrew word for regret here um, literally means just to let out this big, heavy sigh to be grieved and sorrowful, and not because God didn't see this coming. As Jesse talked about a while ago, God doesn't say, don't, um, but because it made God sad to see his child Sam, uh, sorry, Saul choosing out of relationship with him. To give you an idea of how serious this is, that's the same word that we see in Genesis 6, right before uh, God floods the entire earth, and, quote, um, every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Because Samuel's heart is so closely aligned with God's, this makes him so sad and angry that he can't sleep all night. Verse 12. Early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul, but was told, oh, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor and has turned and gone on down toward Gilgal. Uh, some commentators here think that the word uh, monument meant sort of a display case for his new trophy, King Agag. just a way of showing, hey, look how awesome I am. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, Oh, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. When I read this verse, I imagine this huge, dumb, Great Dane just dropping this slobbery, mangled newspaper at the feet of its master, going, Hey, see? You told me to fetch. And I fetched. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears? What is this lowing of cattle that I hear? You um, you fetch me some compost, Saul. That's That's not the same thing as a newspaper. But Saul answered, the soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. They spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. You remember that part where Hedem basically more or less was a way of sacrificing something to God? But this way they profited. They wouldn't have to pay for their own temple sacrifices now. Enough, Samuel said to Saul. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. Oh, great, tell me, Saul replied. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites, wage war against them until you wipe them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Well, but but I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag their king. And the soldiers took sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gelgal. Okay, first off, your God? When did he stop being our God? That's a little concerning. And secondly, what part of completely destroyed leaves anything that can moo? <sighs> more Typhoid Mary is asking, What? I mostly wash my hands. But Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. What does God value? It's trusting him enough to obey him completely without holding out, without going off and doing our own thing, and then trying to sanctify it by giving God a little bit of the spoils once we get what we want. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I was afraid of the men, so I gave in to them. Now I beg you, forgive my sin and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord. All right, pop quiz. Who forgives sins? It's like Bible stu- or Sunday School 101. Jesus. It's always Jesus. Answer is always Jesus. Um pretty much. (laughs) And yes, I know, we're looking at a time before Jesus when the priests were the intermediaries between God and men, sort of the go-betweens. I get that. But Saul seems to have forgotten the God part of it, like all he can see is the human level of things. And Samuel feels compelled to remind him. But Samuel said to him, I will not go back with you. You have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you as king over Israel. As Samuel turned to leave, Saul caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he is not a human being that he should change his mind. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. There's a your God business again, by the way. What the heck? So Samuel went back with Saul, and Saul worshipped the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring me Agag, king of the Amalekites. Agag came to him in chains, and he thought, surely the bitterness of death is past. But Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so will your mother be childless among women. And Samuel put Agag to death before the Lord at Gilgal. Whoa. That's I read this and it's kind of one of those this is Sparta moments. But He's not just doing this to be a badass. He's not just doing this for revenge. He's doing this to obey God. Nothing more. Then Samuel left for Ramah, but Saul went up to his home in Gibeah of Saul, which, by the way, used to be called Gibeah of God earlier in this book. You guys remember that? Until the day Samuel died, he did not go to see Saul again, though Samuel mourned for him. And the Lord regretted, or grieved, that he had made Saul king over Israel. The verb we see here for mourning for Saul is the same verb that was used when you mourned a death. Saul is dead to them. Samuel and Yahweh are mourning for this loss. And Saul is shrugging and going off to do his own thing in Gibeah. You know something? I, don't, I think the reason that Saul was as lost to God as a dead man was because he didn't really believe, or at least didn't accept, that he had done anything wrong. It reminds me of Jesus in Matthew 13, when he was quoting the prophet Isaiah. These people's heart has grown dull, and they've closed their eyes, it says, or else they'd see and hear and understand and turn, and I would heal them. No one is so lost as someone who does not know they are lost. Sorry, guys, this is a really sad story. (laughs) I'm sorry this sermon is such a downer, Um, but so is the scripture we're reading, this bit of history. When awful crap like this happens, I think the best thing that we can do is just mourn it well and then try and learn from it. Try and find ways that we can avoid making the same mistake in our own lives and in the lives of those that we love, those in our lives. To do that, of course, we have to understand what happens. So let's take a look. What is this story really about? The first time I read it, um, before I'd really studied it in any great depth and got a feel for it, It seemed at face value, you know, as if anything just has face value. It seemed through the lens of my 21st century American postmodern lenses um, that the story was basically this. God commands a major war campaign. Saul does it mostly. Um, Samuel and God both get real angry about it and then fly off the handle and tell him to clean out his desk because he's not king anymore. I mean, that's what it looks like to us. We We might even look at this and want to defend Saul, being like, well... God, what's the big deal? Saul mostly obeyed you. Don't you think you might be overreacting just a little bit? We don't like to make a big deal of things. We are Gen X, Gen Y, millennial, postmodernists. We, we've learned the value of tolerance, and believe me, there is value to tolerance. We've been conditioned to understand how damaging condemnation can be, and we've accepted that conditioning wholesale. I mean, of course we would. Why wouldn't we? Ours is a generation that knows firsthand how much it hurts to be condemned wrongly and we hate it. I fear that we might also have learned to hate being called out on something rightly when being called out on something is actually for our benefit to make things better for us. We've learned to avoid that so thoroughly that we do it in our own heads you know, without really knowing that we're doing it. We abolish the idea of right or wrong but the thing is we do it very slowly, too slowly to notice like the easy, quiet, invisible journey of typhoid salmonella germs from a cook's hands to the silverware to, the chi- to a child's lips to the soft fall of dirt on a tiny coffin. But a germ is so small, why would you make such a big deal of it? Look, I'm aware of the limitations of this whole slippery slope idea. I am. But I'm also aware that that's the only way that a whole lot of the awful, crippling things that we do to ourselves and to other people happen. It's by degrees. It's by compromise. Now, I know some of you are probably thinking, I don't don't think I like where this is going. No compromise? I've heard that phrase used to terrible effect before. And no compromise from what? You know, just some cold, dead law that was written thousands of years ago has no relevance in the world today. That sounds like legalism, doesn't it? But I think that this is actually the very opposite of legalism. And the reason I think that is because of the words of Jesus, he who fulfilled the law. Let's go to Matthew 5, one of my favorite parts of the Bible. Here, early on in the Sermon on the Mount, we find Jesus looking at the legalism of the Pharisees and the ways that legalism has actually led them into compromise. By becoming less legalistic, Jesus moves us closer to real goodness. Starting in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder. Now that's a law from Exodus 20, and her murder here, just for clarification, means killing someone out of hatred or because you benefit somehow. Um, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister without cause will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Traka this term meant empty or worthless, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. And then just a few verses later, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. Worth mentioning, Jesus is not actually encouraging self-mutilation. But the strength of the metaphor should tell you how strongly he, God, about this sort of thing. One of the problems with legalism is it's not strong enough. It's inadequate on its own to actually save us from hurting ourselves, hurting each other, damaging our relationship with God. Don't murder is saying, well, don't assassinate anyone with typhoid. (laughs) But Mary Mallon never intended to kill anyone with the typhoid fever. She just didn't cut that possibility off early enough or completely enough. Jesus saying, don't harbor resentment or lust, don't destroy and dehumanize each other with your words. That's more like saying, Ms. Mallon, I know you're new here, but for the love of God, wash your hands. Which is more loving, to confront poisonous compromise in ourselves and each other before it can spread, or to let it fester and destroy, because we're not comfortable making a big deal of things? Don't get me wrong, it is pretty darn easy to... Get so focused on truth that we forget to put love first. It's easy to hurt each other that way or, or ourselves, of course, to do the right thing the wrong way and create shame instead of healing. in the uh, Surfing for God small group that Tim Everson and I co-led a little while ago uh, on porn addiction, we had a lot of really good discussions between the difference or on the difference between guilt and shame. Did you know those are different things? Very much so. Guilt is when you've done a thing and you say, well. That was bad. I should change some things so that I don't do that again. Shame is when you say, I did a bad thing. Now I'm a bad person. And with those definitions, I haven't found a single verse in the Bible that seems to support the idea that God wants us to be shamed, to stay there, immobilized. Guilt, though, I'm sorry, guys, but guilt, it turns out, is actually pretty legit. Um, Don't tune out. This is not going to be a sermon about, you should come to church and feel guilty. And if it feels good, stop it. Um, not at all. So hang with me. The Apostle Paul put it this way in 2 Corinthians 7, which we're going to have up here. Even if I caused you sorrow by my letter, 1 Corinthians, I do not regret it. I see that my letter hurt you, but only for a little while. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, but because your sorrow led you to repentance. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow, shame, brings death. See what this godly sorrow has produced in you, what earnestness, what eagerness, what longing, what concern, what readiness to see justice done. By all this, we are encouraged. When we are in relationship with our brothers and sisters, when they know how much we love them and have known for a while, by the way, we can help heal and take care of them through saying, in love, hey dude, I don't know if you've noticed, but that that looks infected. Like, for God's sake, warn people And know that I'm not acting like this passage is in the Bible, but Matthew 7 isn't. Um, When Jesus said it was hypocrisy to point out the speck of dust in your brother's eye but not do anything about the plank sticking out of your own, he wasn't saying, hey, don't help your brother notice that something is hurting him. He said, first take the log out of your own eye, then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. We've been abusing this verse for a long time to make it say, Well, the Christian thing to do is not interfere with anybody's life, ever. And that's just to make it cater to our cultural paradigm. And that's not honest. But no, I have not forgotten the main point of that passage. (laughs) That's really loud. If you're going to call a brother or sister out in love and for their benefit, yeah, you better be willing to put in the work on your own stuff first. The thing is, though, I don't think we're as touchy about doing our own work as we are about constructively criticizing each other. Of course, we're not super into either one of them. A lot of us have this idea, well, you know, if it isn't completely broke, don't fix it. It's working well enough for me, let's just leave it alone. Why would I bother with it? Well, maybe, maybe. But um, Maybe you should bother with it because it's just not working as well as you think. We're not very good at giving or receiving criticism, whether that's from each other or just inside ourselves. And this sort of life-giving Guidance, it's kind of like a seatbelt or a surgical mask. You know, it only works if you use it. We generally find an excuse not to, and tragically, so did Saul. Like I asked before, what's the story about? What does it tell us about how to not compromise ourselves away from God? To avoid this contagious tendency of ours to just keep right on marching just the way we were, even if we happen to be marching toward a cliff. I don't know about you, but unfortunately I can actually see a lot of myself in Saul here. He does five things, as I counted anyway, in his conversation with Samuel. Five different attempts to avoid letting guilt serve its purpose, which is helping him make the change he needs to to bring healing. And I really do think that at some level, he knows he needs to. How many people here have ever heard of a phrase called cognitive dissonance? One of those, okay, Uh, One of those $50 words you can really just get through life without knowing. Uh, But I think it's helpful here, so let's take a quick look at it. It's a psychology and counseling term for that uncomfortable feeling you get when you've got these two ideas in your head that just will not play nice together. Um, To use an example from my past, uh, before I met my wife Meg, say I'm not married and I really like the physical side of dating my girlfriend, but at the same time I'm convinced in my heart and head that Scripture says God's not cool with that. Not with the lines I'm crossing. Now, these thoughts together in my head create a problem for me. Um, and I can resolve that problem one of a few ways. One way is, well, maybe I just keep my pants on until i marry. The other one that also resolves this feeling, makes it go away, at least for now, is to convince yourself that there isn't a problem. Um, either option makes this bad feeling go away. But both of them also train us, shape us in little gradual ways. The question we've got to ask ourselves is not necessarily, hey, is this thing okay or not? That's a good thing to ask, too. But the question is, do I want to become a man or woman who stands for something steadfast? Or am I okay with being compromised, conditional, and mostly just standing for convenience at the time? I want you to know that's not a question I'm asking of some disinterested third party from up here at the pulpit who, you know, from some pastor that just wants to micromanage our lives from up here. It's one that I've answered by choosing compromise, including but definitely not limited to the example I just gave you. I and mean, for those who have heard me up here, I've told plenty of stories in my old double life, the, you know, the deception, the codependency, the drifting away from God, all that awful crap. Um, so I won't take up time going over it again today, but... I give you this question and this challenge as somebody who failed this pretty hard and for a long time. All five of the mechanisms, if you will, that Saul uses to make this problem go away without really facing it, I did all of that, and it sucked. And I don't want that for you guys. I want something better for us. When Saul faced the question, he chose convenience over loyalty, which is what disqualified him to be God's second-in-command. So let's look at the stages of how this went down. In the PowerPoint, we've got first step, denial. Very popular. In verse 13, Saul first feels this sort of cognitive dissonance coming on, and he responds by acting like everything's okay. The Lord bless you, he says. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. He's not actually thinking about it at this point. He knows that would make the bad feeling come back, so he's essentially just sticking his fingers in his ears and going, la, 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 la everything's fantastic, I'm awesome! Now, that looks completely ridiculous from the outside, obviously, um, but it can feel pretty convincing to those of us who got good enough at it. So here's a bit of advice from a former expert. If you're going to do this, it really helps to clothe your denial in some kind of ideology. Uh, for example, if you want some extra money so you're going to cheat on your taxes, be sure you call it a protest against government corruption. Uh, and if you're gonna cut somebody down with your words, make sure you call it righteous anger. Ooh. There's a there's a whole world of options out there for us, as long as we're willing to be people of compromise. Sometimes denial doesn't cut it, so we try something else, leading us to step two. Pretend that partial obedience is obedience. Check out verse fifteen. The soldiers spared the best of the sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God, but we totally destroyed the rest. You totally destroyed part of something? That's like saying kind of pregnant. Like, just, just a little, just, yish. Girl Jessie was telling me, Girl Jessie Heilman, how sometimes her kids will only eat half the food on their plate and then ask for dessert. And she'll tell them, no, 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 you need to finish your plate. And they'll go, but I finished half of it. If you finish part of something, you haven't finished. Sorry, that's just how logic works. We really like making that argument, though. You know, I got closer to doing the right thing than I might have done. Well, fine, but if you haven't done it, you haven't done it. Or how about this one? Well, I do it better than most people. Well, by that logic, just stealing somebody's lunch out of the break room fridge is fine because somewhere else people are embezzling pensions and jacking cars. So I can just (laughs) steal whatever food I want. Theft is fine now. Thanks, guys. Taking the blow from me. (laughs) When playing the, but I kind of did it, card doesn't really cut it anymore, we and Saul reach for the next thing, which is redefine the terms of obedience. Remember when uh, former President Clinton pulled this one? (laughs) I did not have sexual relations with that woman, and when that stopped working, that wasn't sexual relations. Ditto Saul. He says... But I did obey the Lord. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. Uh, oh, and, and I brought back Agag, their king, and the soldiers took the sheep and cattle. But that's not what God told him to do. He said to destroy, quote, all that belongs to them, the possessions, the loot that you guys took. Once Saul made the decision not to obey God's command, he had to retroactively change what the command had been. That lets him feel just fine. It's convenient. If we want to look at a New Testament example of something we might do this with, Jesus commands us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things, food, shelter, clothes, will be added to you. So if he says, seek God first, but I know that I really seek financial security first, or convenience, or comfort, well... I can get around that and make the feeling go away as long as I redefine first. I mean, Jesus must have meant first among the non-essentials, right? We should take care of the survival stuff, and, and, and then we'll do it. That way I can seek first the kingdom and righteousness, uh, second, third, 25th, um, as long as I redefine it to be convenient for me. Eventually this rationalizing breaks down, and we have to admit fault, but what's the best thing to there being no fault? Having it be someone else's fault. Number four, shift the blame. We see this in verse 24 where Saul said, I have sinned, I violated the Lord's command and your instructions. I I was afraid of the men, so I I gave in to them. Okay, so I did something wrong, but it's not my fault. They made me do it. And like our previous examples, there's an awful lot of different scapegoats out there for us to run to. So many options. Um, Some of my favorites that I've heard uh, are probably college professors and interviewers. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Well, man, the, the prof makes these exams so hard, you have to cheat to pass them. If you wanted academic honesty, he shouldn't force us to cheat. Or how about this one, perhaps a little more relatable to some of us. Well, man, every everybody lies and exaggerates a little bit on their resume. You have to do that to get a job. Really? You couldn't just, I don't know, maybe pray for provision and then inter- interview honestly and And maybe trust that God would do the thing he promised he would if you sought him first? A lot of the time, I feel like this comes down to do I trust God enough to obey him completely without compromise? I remember one time when I was still working at the pharmacy. Um, Allergy season was pretty bad that year, Um, which of course is great business for pharmacy, but bad for me. So... (coughs) I was taking some generic Claritin every morning just to make it not feel terrible and like my face is packed full of cotton. That day, though, uh, I realized halfway through the shift that uh, I must not have taken any since my face felt like it was imploding. We had some of the uh, Claritin stuff on the shelf back in the pharmacy, but it wasn't for sale for some pretty boring pharmacy law reasons I won't bother with. And I didn't want to drop 10 or 20 bucks on the smallest package of over-the-counter Claritin that was, in fact, over-the-counter. Um, I was working with only one other person there, so it would have been a piece of cake to just walk over, just take one of these little 10-cent pills out of the bottle we had back there, just swallow it, and make up the 10 cents or so by dropping some pocket change in the register at the end of the night. No harm, no foul, right? I really didn't like that particular boss I was working with either, so the thought occurred to me, you know, if she wasn't taking shots at me every day, I wouldn't even have this idea. Besides, I thought, it's only a dime and it's an over-the-counter drug, so what? And the thought slammed into my head so hard that I knew it was a thought God wanted to be there. And it was, is your integrity worth so little that a ten-cent allergy pill is worth more? You know what I like about that example? It's one where the whole slippery slope thing totally doesn't apply. <laughs> Claritin is not a gateway drug. Um, you don't have to ask your pharmacist about that. Uh, and I know me, like Oxycon that I had access to, that just does not interest me. Nothing else would have come of it in terms of my actions. But the thing is, my actions weren't even the biggest point here. The point was the condition of my heart. It was a choice to either make little acts of self serving greed a little more acceptable or not. What is our integrity worth? Last but not least, Saul so resorts to one final step save face and keep moving. See this in verse 30. Saul replied, I have sinned, but please honor me before the elders of my people and before Israel. Come back with me so I may worship the Lord your God. Or in other words, yeah, okay, fine, I'm sorry. So are we going to make it to the press release in time or not? (laughs) Slow down, dude. It's pretty obvious from the complete and total lack of reflection here that he has learned nothing from this. Saul's not going to change. The role of guilt, what Paul called godly sorrow, is to turn us away from the things we're doing that jack up our lives. If you're not letting it produce change, you are wasting an opportunity and a precious one. You know something, and I mean, theologically I may be going out on a little bit of a limb here. Understand this is me, not something I'm reading straight out of the Bible. But I don't think that Saul's failing to wage total war is what cost him the kingship. I really don't. I think that specific act was a symptom of this massive infection he already had going on. He was as compromised as a lung full of cancer. His loyalty was wheezing. And following his example, the people of Israel, their love for God would have gasped itself comatose. A loving God would not allow that. Will we follow God and Samuel's example? We're so afraid of pain that we avoid the scalpel. I mean, surgery hurts, yes, but it cures. Will you take the necessary steps to get well, to face the pain and discomfort of guilt, and let Jesus, our great physician, turn it into an instrument of healing to make us better than we were before, more truly happy? Will you embrace the healing even very early in the infection called compromise and become strong and free once again. I have no doubt at all that one or two of you are probably kind of mad at me right now, or if not actually mad that you've written me off as some kind of self-judgmental, condemning, judgmental um, raka, maybe. Who doesn't know what he's talking about? If anything I've said has created that cognitive dissonance for you, Don't waste it. This is gold. Don't do any of the things that Saul did that robbed his moment of guilt and dissonance of its ability to create healing and growth. Write down how you're feeling right now. You know, think it over later. Talk it over with God and a friend that you trust to both love you well and help you dig for truth. I mean, heck, feel free to talk to me. I'm going to be hanging out here for a little while before I go home and sleep as many hours as possible. Or if anything I've said has stirred something up inside you, a desire to grow closer to God, please, come talk to somebody in the prayer cave, that little nook over there. We're going to have some folks that are willing to pray with you during the second uh, set of worshiping through song. But please, brothers and sisters, never, never settle. Never stop going deeper, seeking truth, loving more fully, and caring more deeply. I love you guys. Thanks.